From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Heart Association, 2,300 Americans die of cardiovascular disease each day. That's an average of one death every 38 seconds. This month, it's a good time to think about your heart, and not just because it's Valentine's Day. February is American Heart Month, aimed at raising awareness for the deadliest disease in the U.S. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss heart disease and prevention with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about an FDA-approved app for birth control. And bogus treatments for erectile dysfunction. All that, along with this week's health and medical news. That's this week's program. Up next. Heart disease is still the number one killer in America for both men and women. Every year, one in four deaths is caused by heart disease. Heart disease includes a wide range of conditions that affect your heart, including blood vessel diseases, such as coronary artery disease, heart rhythm problems, and problems with the heart valves or heart muscle itself, among others. The term heart disease is often used interchangeably with the term cardiovascular disease. A little bit more fancy. Cardiovascular disease generally refers to both heart problems and blood vessel disease that can occur anywhere in the body. In an ongoing effort to raise awareness and promote prevention of heart disease, each February is recognized as American Heart Month. And here to discuss is our favorite Mayo Clinic cardiologist. No one else is in the room, right? <laughs> Dr. Stephen Kopetsky is here. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kopetsky. Thank you very much. I wouldn't have even thought the difference between heart disease and cardiovascular disease. Right. It, uh, we use them interchangeably. It gets confusing. I agree. What are the risks? The risks, unfortunately, are many. The number one risk factor now for heart disease that has passed up cholesterol, passed up blood pressure, passed up smoking is diet, the food pattern that we eat. Is that something that you think is going to be easy to swing back the other way, or is it, are we here to stay for a while? It is, uh, it's taking off. It's going to be a problem. And a couple of reasons. One is our kids. 100% of kids under age four overeat. It's not their fault. It's their parents. It's us. It's me, you know. When we get to patients or, or folks that eat uh, too much of the wrong foods, addictive foods, uh, added on calorie foods, there's a lot of that. 60% of our calories come from these things we really don't think we can control, but we really do, like the automatic foods we eat that we don't even think about. It. You sit down, you order your food at a restaurant, they bring you some bread and some butter. All of a sudden, the bread and the butter are all gone. What happened to it? So it's just very, very common, this issue with the diet throughout kids, adults, everybody. So tell us a little bit about um, some of the connection between high blood pressure and heart disease. Yes. Even uh, small amounts of high blood pressure rise can cause real trouble with your heart. Why is that? Patients will say, gee, Doc, my blood pressure is only a couple of points over where it should be. I'll say, yeah, but your heart pumps 100,000 times a day. So think of that. 100,000 times a day, it, multiply that by whatever percent or numbers your blood pressure is too high. It takes too high of a toll on your poor little heart. Then you gain a few pounds. Every pound of fat we gain is an extra five miles of blood vessels. So if your heart pumps 100,000 times a day, Times five, that's an extra half a million miles per pound, a million miles per two pounds. You get the math. Yeah. So this all adds up, and it really does wear out our heart. 
And what we eat really affects our blood pressure too, right? Oh, exactly. Lots of salt, a lot of sodium. We're not active enough physically, which opens up our blood vessels. The bigger the blood vessel, the lower the pressure. You know, the bigger the pipe, the lower the pressure. So we really are working against ourselves, I'm afraid. I just uh, heard a piece on the Mayo News Network recently about the menopause and how um, menopause can affect your blood pressure because as your hormones change, then you gain a little bit of weight and uh, sends you kind of down the same pathway. I didn't think of menopause as being a risk, uh, though. Yes, and the earlier menopause is more of a risk. Sure. So that's one thing we ask women. When did you have menopause? Was it in your 40s versus your late 50s? That's a, a difference for your risk. And pregnancy. You know, pregnancy, I think I admire any woman that's gotten through pregnancy, but if their blood pressure was high, if their blood sugar was high during the pregnancy, that's a risk for more problems later in life. Yeah, and that's definitely something we don't want to forget about is to remember to ask women about those issues during pregnancy and thinking as they go on in life. What about, you know, my mom or dad's history? How does that affect me? Yeah, you're, you know, the acorn does not far too fall from the, far from the tree, as you know. And if it happened early with your mom or dad, Early being uh, early for a woman before age 65, early for a man before age 55, because men tend to get their disease about 10 years before a woman. So if it's early, and uh, it's not just your mom or dad, it could be your grandparent or a you know brother, certainly something like that. Those are things we need to pay attention to. Let's talk about the cholesterol numbers, because there's the LDL and the HDL, yeah. and what they really mean. Yes. The way I remember it in my simple mind is is LDL, we want to keep low. HDL, you want to keep high because uh-huh. LDL is lousy and HDI is healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay, So we can raise the HDL with physical activity. That's the best way we found. Stopping smoking, your HDL will go up within six weeks. Um, eating lower-fat foods is helpful, too. LDL is more medicines, unfortunately, but it's also diet. Recent studies have shown that diet really can affect our LDL. And if we're eating a lot of high saturated fats, animal fats specifically, that'll raise our LDL. Is there one that's more important than the other? If you get where your LDL is too high and your HDL is too low, should you try to raise the HDL? <laughs> yeah, the uh, that's a very good question. And uh, I think we have to do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't just fix one thing and, le- and sure. let the other things uh, go off. The, we do encourage folks to be physically active and interval activity where you go hard for 30 seconds, 60 seconds, that'll raise your HDL more. We do encourage them to eat uh, less uh, animal saturated fat, eat more olive oil, uh, avocado oil, nut oil, as uh, which is a very healthy oil, uh, eat more fruits and vegetables, less red meat. Those things really do add up. called the Mediterranean diet, which helps many diseases, not just the heart. How do you ultimately diagnose heart disease? How do you figure it out? When we say heart disease, we usually mean there's something that's gone wrong. The mm-hmm. artery has gotten plugged up in the, in the heart. The valve doesn't work the way it should anymore. The heart rhythm is abnormal. Remember, the heart has plumbing. It has electricity. Mm-hmm. It has all these different parts to it and doors that open and close. So we have to diagnose each individually. It starts with a good history, talking to the patient, saying, what do you feel when you're doing you know, activity? Can you lay down flat? Do your feet swell, et cetera? Also talking about family, you know, did your mom or dad have similar problems like this? Because this can run in families. 
then listen to the patient. There's this ancient thing we have called a stethoscope <laughs> wow. that we <laughs> I know that we use. Um, sound wave tests, echocardiogram, stress tests. It depends on the disease, but usually start with the history. In fact, one of my mentors here told me, if you don't know what's going on when you finish the history of the patient, don't even bother doing anything else because you should get all you need to know from talking to the patient and taking mm. a good history. So during the month of February, right, it's American Heart Disease Awareness. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Is there something that we could, an opportunity here to educate people a little bit more? Well, yes, there is. I don't know why the shortest month is the month for the biggest killer. <laughs> um, when you eat a lot of candy. doesn't yes. make any sense, right? That doesn't work. But we, uh, the opportunity is just to raise awareness. You know, a woman, as you mentioned earlier, as the intro, that a woman at any age is more likely to die of heart disease than of breast cancer at mm-hmm. that age. Uh, what's the number one killer of women with breast cancer? Heart disease. Mm-hmm. So we really do need to raise awareness, and it's all about prevention now. We really need to prevent the disease. We cannot wait until it occurs and treat it. And Well, what are some treatment options? If someone does get diagnosed with heart disease, do you start off with a medication right away, or do you try to attack it with diet Yes, or both? Well, it's pretty much both. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody needs a little better diet, mm-hmm. needs a little bit more physical activity. That's good for everybody in almost all cases. But in general, medications are very helpful. If you have arteries that are narrowed, you're getting some discomfort in your chest or shortness of breath when you exert yourself, you know, nitroglycerin, long-acting nitroglycerin-type pills, some pills that make it so the heart doesn't have to need as much blood when it mm-hmm. pumps can be very helpful. Uh, if it's a blood pressure problem, your pressure's too high, the heart's working too hard, the valves are leaking, whatever, treat the blood pressure. That's usually diet, obviously, and, and lifestyle plus medications. We're talking about heart disease with Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Steve Kopetsky. Time to talk about the very popular statin medications. Yeah, but first, myth or matter of fact, Dr. Kopetsky, diabetics cannot take statins. Is that a myth or a fact? Big myth. Why do people think that? Why is that even? Well, because we found it's after the statins were on the market for 20 years, we found that that diabetes can actually be brought out by being on a Mm -hmm. statin. And it's usually, though, the patients that are going to become diabetic anyway, they're, they have it a few months earlier than they would have had if they didn't go on the statin. The other thing is for every patient that does become diabetic, five heart attacks are prevented. When it comes to statins, are more and more people going on them or are cardiologists kind of backing off prescribing statins? No, I think that there are more. I mean, the new guidelines that came out two months ago increased the number of people that should go on statins. They added more criteria to include when you're considering putting a patient on a statin. Now, the flip side of that question are patients taking the statins. Uh, we know that about 20% of people that get the prescription don't fill it. It's a three-month prescription. About half the people almost won't get their second prescription filled. So pretty quickly they get off it. Well, uh, but some patients have side effects from statins that they don't appreciate They worry a lot much. about the side yeah. effects. That's a big discussion, sort of yes. a big negotiation. Yeah, it is. And... Uh, you know, this informed process, it's, you need to have a conversation with a patient about it and tell them, I tell them, you know, you may get muscle aches and, but it, the studies show only one or two percent of people get muscle aches, but that's because the way we did the studies, we excluded people mm-hmm. that have had muscle aches with statins in the past. So we never got them in the randomized, you know, trials. So it may be 10, 15, 20 percent of people that get the statins, but like you mentioned, Elizabeth, the big thing is the people that won't even take a statin because they are afraid of getting side effects. And those are the ones that I think is a bigger group than the ones that get side effects when they're on a statin. So if I make up my mind to take my statin, 
Big Macs for the rest of my life? Well, you know, patients, I had a patient say to me the other day, Doc, can I have the statin so I can eat whatever I want? Mm. I said, it doesn't work that way. In fact, we know that if you do not eat healthy, like Mediterranean fruits, vegetables, small amounts of red meat, less dairy, uh, more olive oil, if you do not eat that way on the statin, your cholesterol numbers look better, yes, but your heart attack rates and your stroke rates and bypass rates do not lower. So... Your numbers look better, but you still have the bad cardiac events. So we know that you really do have to eat appropriately, even if you're on a statin. What's kind of your quick elevator speech to that patient who is reluctant to even consider a statin? Well, I say it's all about risks and benefits. And number one, you're the boss. If you get muscle aches, you stop it. Call me. Let's wash it out for months and start you on something that you can tolerate. I don't want you to hurt. Because I I tell them frequently, you're looking at a person right now who's been on six statins. A few years ago, I couldn't get out of bed one morning. I thought I had rheumatoid arthritis because I was so stiff, and it was the statin I was on. Mm. I stopped it. It got better, started again, came back, et cetera. So I tell them, you're the boss. Number two is your risk is here, high. The risk of statins is low. Then that's – you ought to try it. You know, if you don't want to, you know, it's your mm-hmm. decision. However, I think in the long run, it can really benefit you. If you have heart disease, then that's a no-brainer. If you have narrowing of the arteries, you should be on a statin. Let's go back to preventing heart disease. What are some tips for prevention that you have for listeners? Well, the uh, number one diet, I encourage people to change their diet, but not abruptly. I say I use the word migrate Mm -hmm. a dozen times a day. Please migrate to this healthy food pattern. I don't call it a diet because I say diet and everybody folds their hands. and (laughs) Diet's never good. Diet's not good. I say I want you to eat a healthy food pattern. Mm -hmm. And here is one that we've outlined, and take this quiz and try to do it over a year or two, Mm -hmm. and it can really help you. Take small amounts. Get a hamburger, cut out a part of it, and put some black beans in there, you know, something healthy. And it's been shown slow changes over time you can tolerate and not feel deprived. The second thing is physical activity. You know, that's really great for your heart. It's amazing how good it is for your heart and your body. And just, again, small doses, five minutes, ten minutes, a few intervals. Uh, don't feel like you have to go to the gym for an hour. We don't have, nobody has time for that anyway. 150 minutes. Yeah. You make time for it. <laughs> that's tough. But small, small doses you can, you can do. The next, control two habits. Smoking, which is none. Alcohol, which is small amounts. I don't encourage people to drink if they don't drink. And the third thing is you need to promote things that heal your heart. One is sleep. We know that sleep is restorative for your heart. You've got to get good sleep, and there are all these problems we do with computers in bed and such. The other thing is the the stress, the social, the support. You need to have support. You need to have people helping you, you know, friends, spouses, whatever, loved ones, significant others, a family that will support you, and that in turn supports your heart. Be optimistic. I tell patients when you go to bed at night, think of three things that good that happened to you today. That's been shown to reduce heart attacks after three to five years. What about supplements? Is there a role for that in helping prevent or to treat heart disease? That's a great question. And supplements in general, no. There are a few supplements that are good and some that were bad. Uh, the ones that are good, we know some supplements like uh, oatmeal, oat bran, lowers cholesterol, Stanols and sterols, lower cholesterol. What are some stanols and sterols? Uh, there are things you find in, like, um, soybeans, but you have to eat a couple of bushels of soybeans, so you have to buy them over the counter. They're not, they're not prescription. You can find them in juices, yogurts, pills, mm-hmm. things like that. And then psyllium seed is very good to lower cholesterol, also lowers blood sugar. 
um, those are good. We know that things like uh, aspirin, if your your risk uh, is high for a heart attack, more than about 10 or 15 percent, uh, if you don't have bleeding problems, aspirin can actually help you. There's been a lot of negative press about it recently. Some things are not good. Beta carotene is not good. High dose vitamin E, high dose vitamin C. I'm not talking about multivitamin dose, but mm-hmm. high dose is not good. The thing is, we just don't have a pill that substitutes for lifestyle change. Right. You I know, can... you said something earlier, Dr. Cozine, uh, the elevator speech yeah. that a cardiologist would give. What kind of speech? You're the front line. You're you the know, primary. I have carry. a pretty similar elevator speech right? too. Is say, you know, one of my classic lines is. My patients who have been successful, and I say, what is it that you did? And they say, oh, it was easy. I changed my whole life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's funny. Mm-hmm. But then really, you think about it, you make those little changes over time, and that yeah. adds up. Yeah. And I think one thing that I really encourage people is they don't know how good they could feel. Mm-hmm. And once you start exercising and eating a little bit better, your energy levels shoot up, and then you have more energy to do the stuff that helps mm-hmm. make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does the front line of this happen? I mean, if somebody has heart disease, if something happens that they're not feeling so well, I would imagine the first time anybody sees them is the emergency room. Do they first come to they, your physical? You know, physical? I would say many times they're coming to me first. You know, there's your your health plan wants you to have a oh, lipid panel every sure. year to get whatever that credit is mm-hmm. on your insurance. And so the numbers come back and think, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with these? And then so I work with the patient to interpret what those values mean and decide what are we going to do about it. And usually what we're going to do about it is diet and exercise and follow-up. So I'm always making sure that there's a follow-up piece because you can't just say, change your life and then send them off into the breeze. You know, <laughs> got to support people. Like yeah. you said, make sure there's family yeah. support. But when I get in a jam, you know, I send my patient to someone like Dr. Kopetsky. In mm-hmm. fact, I share many patients with him that are struggling with statins or maybe we need to get onto one of the fancier new medicines that I'm not as familiar with. Team-based approach. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Right. <laughs> and I would agree with everything you said, except it wouldn't be diet and exercise. It would be healthy food pattern healthy. and vigorous leisure activity. Vigorous leisure activity. I need to refine my lines here. <laughs> You've got it right from the horse's mouth here. <laughs> February is American Heart Month, and we've been talking about heart disease and statin medications with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a birth control app. And a warning, beware of bogus treatments for erectile dysfunction. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. What many people commonly call stomach flu isn't the flu at all. If you're tired and have an unsettled tummy, you may have a stomach virus. Dr. Cindy Kermit explains the difference between flu and a stomach virus and offers advice for dealing with a stomach bug. She says stomach flu is a misnomer. Influenza is respiratory. It has to do with the lungs. You get the dry cough, the fevers, the malaysias, where you feel like a train's hit you. So what is the ailment we call stomach flu? Dr. Kermit says it's just a common term for a viral gastroenteritis. Dr. Kermit says the best remedy for it is simply to rest and that symptoms exist because they're telling your body what to do. They're telling you to slow down. If you get it, Dr. Kermit's advice is to avoid eating or drinking anything for a few hours. Then she says it's important to stay hydrated. Sip on a clear fluid, water's best, but clear sodas or weak teas are okay too. If you can't tolerate liquids, try chewing on ice chips. When your stomach has fully settled, try eating small amounts of easily digestible foods like soda crackers, unbuttered toast, gelatin, or a banana. Avoid fatty and spicy foods until you're fully recovered. 
And in other news, mindfulness is a buzzword these days, but what does it really mean? Richa Sood, a Mayo Clinic general internist, says practicing mindfulness may help lower your stress level and make you happier. At its core, there are two big components, says Sood. The first one is putting our attention in the moment where we want it to be. Pay attention to the here and now. That way your mind won't wander or focus on the negative. But sometimes, Dr. Sood says, the present moment may be dull. It may be painful. So attention alone doesn't cut it. We also need to be looking at the moment in a non-judgmental fashion. So what does that mean? Well, when we get a thought or an experience, we immediately have a response to it. Good, bad, not so good, I don't care, or I'm scared, something like that. Dr. Sood says before you respond, pause. Mindfulness is attention, focus, and delayed judgment, which decreases emotional reactivity. Mindfulness may reduce stress and improve your quality of life. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to birth control, there are many options. From natural family planning and over-the-counter birth control products to prescription contraceptives, and now there's an app for that. There's a, oh, there's an app for everything. I know. Of course, there has the to be. Food, there is. The Food and Drug Administration recently approved a Swedish app called Natural Cycles to market itself as a form of birth control in the U.S. This is modern technology's answer to the age-old method of women keeping track of their cycle to determine a fertility window, either to become pregnant or to avoid conceiving. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gynecologist and fertility expert, Dr. Margaret Long. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Long, it's nice to see you again. Thank you. Now, uh, the old joke that I remember is, you know what they call people who use the family planning method? Parents. Parents, parents. Yes. Right. right. Yes. So I'm not sure that I want to put my fertility in the form of an app. Yeah. So I think it's a good method of avoiding pregnancy. It requires a lot of personal um, input and dedication to do natural family planning. And it definitely reduces a pregnancy rate, but it may not reduce it enough for certain circumstances. You know, if you really, really, really don't want to be pregnant right now, this may not be the way to go. It involves checking your temperature every morning. You have to have a regular sleep schedule. You can't exercise vigorously the night before. There's a list of about eight different things that you have to do to make this work. So instead of keeping track of it on a piece of paper or in your diary, you put it on an app. That's kind of the difference. And I think it does provide a little bit of decision support. So you don't necessarily have to keep track of certain parts of the decision-making, but you still have to input data on a regular basis. Actually, the big study that they did to uh, support approval of this app, only about 45% of women were still using it after a year. Because it was too difficult? I guess so. I mean, I, I mean, do you know where this fits in with like the, you know, on social media feeds, you'll see a bracelet to monitor your fertility or things like that. Do you have I don't, any idea about any of those? I, I don't know about the, okay. the bracelet. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, there are some things that do, um, help you keep track of what days of your cycle you're uh-huh. in. And, you know, for some, it has a totally, utterly regular normal cycle. That's fine. Most women don't. Most women fluctuate a few days here or there. That's totally normal but it does make it more complicated to do it that way. Well, let's talk about the pros and cons of the different mm-hmm. methods. So what what are the pros of a natural family planning or using this app, for instance? There, um, There's no hormones involved. You know, Some women either have limitations to what hormones they can use or choose not to use them. There are beliefs, you know, that they shouldn't use hormones. You know, this can support women that are, you know, trying to use a 
totally hormone-free method. Um, you can start and stop it whenever you want. You can go online and, and start it up. I, Who do you think would be the ideal candidate for using this app? You mentioned the regular periods. Yeah, so you ha- yeah, if you don't have regular periods, it's not going to give you very many days where you can have unprotected intercourse. Okay. Um, the average age of women that were using it in the study was about 30. Um, you're not supposed to be under 18, and actually younger women tend to have more irregular periods, and also their fertility is really, really good. Yeah. So probably not good there. Um, you know, perimenopausal women don't qualify. So, you know, so kind of middle-aged yeah. women with regular schedules and a commitment to using this, that's... Would be a good candidate. Right. What so, sort of birth control would you recommend? There are a lot more options for birth control out now than there used to be. I mean, the very highly effective methods, which are sometimes called LARC, have pregnancy rates of a few per thousand per year. And, you know, that's similar to having your tubes tied, except for it's reversible. And so, you know, if you're in a position where you really, really don't want to get pregnant, you know, one of those options probably would be a good choice. You know, there are benefits of hormonal contraceptives such as birth control pills as far as psychoregulation. You know, for some women, they can help with acne. I mean, there are other things that you get out of birth control um, other than contraception. And so, you know, that would be a reason why you might choose some of those. Um, what about IUDs? Uh, that would be one of the long-acting reversible contraceptives. Which is LARC, which sounds right, really right. happy. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And also over-the-counter options like condoms? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the condoms are tons better than doing nothing, but they don't work as well as hormonal contraception. And I think of it as hormonal contraception usually works in multiple different ways, whereas barrier methods work in one way. If the one way doesn't work, then you might have there's, a baby. there's no backup. <laughs> right. uh, what about um, side effects of, uh, like, if you're on the pill or IUD mm-hmm. that that might make it more difficult to get pregnant in the future? Is that of concern for some women? Uh, the um, hormonal contraceptives work while you're using them, but they don't affect your future fertility. Um, one thing that does really hit your f- future fertility is time. Do you mean age? Yes, yeah. yes. So that your fertility now is better than what it's going to be in five years or 10 years or 15 years. Which is tricky because many women are waiting longer to have right. their children to start their family. Right. And um, I mean, fertility gets a lot worse in the late 30s, but when fertility drops off varies tremendously from individual to individual. Well, we wanted to get you in here to talk about this Swedish app as a form of birth control, but now that you're here, let's talk about the Mayo Clinic app. Yeah. Right, right. Because you had you played a little bit of a part in that. Right, and I right. recommend this all the time. Okay. I love it for yeah. my patients. So it's it helps you decide what's the right sort of contraception for you. As you know, we mentioned earlier, there are a lot of factors that can go into what's the right contraception for you right now. Because it may be that there's one option that's the right thing now, but in a couple of years from now, something else might be a better choice for you. So, you know, the answer can change over time, but this kind of helps you figure out, you know, looking at your medical history and how much you're interested or in being pregnant or not being pregnant. And, you know, are you a good pill taker? Some people are, some people definitely are not. Mm-hmm. You know, One thing like I that. really like about the app, it is also shows little pictures. So there are some visuals. You can say, oh, this is what an IUD looks like. And it helps the patient really imagine where it might go, what it might do. And sometimes that can be a little more tricky than you think. And so Mm -hmm. it's helpful to 
separate out a pill versus, you know, the, the LARC option. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Gotcha. And, and how can people find this app? What's it called? I think it's the Mayo Clinic Birth Control. Yeah, yeah. let's ask the doctor. So, yeah, who yeah. It. I, I recommend it all the time. So I tell my patients just go to any app store. You can get it on Google Play or on the, the Apple, Apple store. App Store. Mm-hmm. And so if you just search Mayo Clinic, it usually will come come up, and it's called okay. the Mayo Clinic Birth Control app. And um, last I checked, it was not free, but it was a really nominal charge. I think maybe two or three dollars. I'd have to confirm that. But um, but a really good price to help you make an informed decision. And sometimes that office visit isn't just quite enough time to have people really digest what it is they might want to use. Excellent. Well, we've been talking about birth control options, including an app that was recently approved by the FDA with Mayo Clinic gynecologist, Dr. Margaret Long. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Long. Thank you. Erectile dysfunction, also known as ED, is the inability to get and keep an erection firm enough for sex. If erectile dysfunction is an ongoing issue, it can cause stress, affect self-confidence, and contribute to relationship problems. ED is a medical condition and treatments are available, but scammers are also out there, especially on the Internet, offering treatments and cures that may prove to be bogus and then, you know, troubling for the patients. Here to discuss how to be aware of bogus treatments is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Tobias Kohler. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kohler. It's nice to see you again. Great to be back. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, especially to talk about this, because you had said, uh, Dr. Kohler, that you didn't even, did you even realize all the bogus ED treatments that are out there? Some of the more uh, popular ones or uh, glorified ones, yes, but as I prepared for this uh, segment, I found even more interesting ones out there on the internet. Is there an effective treatment for erectile dysfunction that doesn't need a prescription? Let's start with just treating that ED before we get into the weeds with what's out there that can be harmful. Uh, yes, it's a very boring one. It's uh, be healthy overall, exercise, eat right, have a uh, slim waistline, all those things that are difficult to do. That is very good for quality erections. Do people, are patients surprised when you say you need to have a better diet and exercise more? Yes. They are. If the primary care doc even says too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think uh, they're disappointed to hear that (laughs) because it's clearly not the easiest easiest way. But indeed, actually uh, changing your diet is as effective as pills. So Dr. Cousin, you said as the primary care doctor, you even have patients who talk with you about this. Yeah, you know, I I talk about this a lot. And um, oftentimes I'm talking about this with younger guys who are starting to maybe gain some weight, maybe have an impaired fasting glucose. And something I've been experimenting with lately is that kind of carrot and saying, you might not be able to sustain an erection if you oh. continue down this path. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but it's what I've been doing. Absolutely. Is she messing with their heads? Absolutely the right thing to do. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Yes. Is there a herbal or an all-natural treatment for ED that actually works? No. <laughs> that's that's the short answer. Well, that's the end of our interview. <laughs> Done. <laughs> but there's a pretty big market for them out there. Yeah. Yeah. Any person who checks their emails, particularly their, their junk or spam folder, they will get several of these advertisements uh, per day. Uh, there are a lot of people trying to make money, uh, and they're preying on... Men who are embarrassed, uh, men who don't want to go to the physician, uh, and hoping to get their money in a, with a bogus cure. Let's start trying to convince them that that's not going to happen. Cause I can see people saying, well, I see this in my email or it's in the back of a magazine or whatever. And 
you know, they couldn't sell it if it was going to hurt me. I could just try it and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's problematic thinking too. So I challenge all the listeners to go to Google and type in FDA non-approved erectile dysfunction treatments, mm-hmm. and you'll find a list of very uh, creatively named substances <laughs> with uh, health risks. You know, some of them have uh, crazy ingredients in them. Some of them have minor components of actual, you know, prescription required medicines that would cause adverse reactions if you're on other medications, for example. Mm-hmm. So it has a little bit of Vigar type medication. If you're on nitroglycerin, then that's going to cause a problem. So it's not only uh, throwing your money away, but it's also risky because these, this drug market is completely unregulated by the yeah. FDA. Why aren't supplements regulated? That's a good question for uh, people smarter than me, uh, but they simply aren't. So when you go into you know your nutraceutical companies, all these uh, so-called you know nutraceuticals, you have no consistency in terms of what's in it, how much is in it, even between different bottles, you can have different amounts. So it's highly dangerous, and you know again, for the vast majority of the time, it's it's not worth the expense. Could you remind us a little bit about how erectile dysfunction, FDA-approved medications do work? Well, uh, you know, the most common ones are the Viagra-like medications, sildenafil. They actually uh, help the body's natural erectile dysfunction system, or sorry, erection system, function better by essentially, you know, acting at the biochemical level in, in the penis. Uh, so... They work, and originally these were all drugs designed to treat heart disease, actually. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this last time, but most of these drugs were just kind of discovered by accident. But now when you want to pass a drug that's prescribed, it has to go through numerous trials, uh, an unbelievable vetting process before it's deemed safe and effective. And the good news is is that any man who wants to cure their erections, they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, affordably, typically at a low cost if you have insurance, uh, with different types of uh, treatments, whether it be pills, a vacuum device, uh, injections, or even surgery, which we talked about last time. But the point is that the, all these excellent treatments are available, but remember that if you have erectile dysfunction, it can be a sign of underlying medical problems, which should be investigated. And that, again, we do have excellent treatments. You don't need to waste your money on things that you know are touting magical properties. Right. The, the saying is true, things are too good to be true. Uh, don't use them. You said that uh, you know these companies are preying on people who are too embarrassed to go talk with their doctors about it. So can you put that in some numbers for me? I mean, I would imagine that any patient who finally says, I have to go talk to my doctor about erectile dysfunction is probably feeling uncomfortable when that conversation begins. Yeah, and as a medical profession, we can do a better job of asking the question first. Yeah. Uh, and making it, uh, you know, something as normal part of health, uh, psychiatric health, sexual health, you know, diet health, all these yeah, kind of things. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I almost all... kind of think of this as the, oh, by the way question. You know, my hand's on the door and then someone says, doc. Right. I'm like, oh, shoot, there's one more thing he wants to talk to me about. Right. And right. so I've gotten trying to be a lot better about just asking about any sexual health concerns and then it kind of goes down the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Uh, you were asking about specifics. Uh, there are three specific types of bogus treatments which I like to bring up today because patients are asking me about them. Mm-hmm. So the three kind of hot things these days are one is shockwave therapy of the penis, mm. another one is stem cell therapy of the penis, and the other one is platelet-rich plasma of the penis. So are okay. these like at med spas that patients are? 
Yeah, the term med spa would it's, probably be generous. Okay. So these okay. are <laughs> these are places just looking to make money, mm-hmm. and they're using completely experimental, non-proven treatments mm-hmm. to sell to men and charging you know three thousand dollars per treatment. These kind of things, just ridiculous amounts wow. of money. So if you were to look up PRP, uh, which, which is platelet-rich plasma. plasma, on the internet and look at, under Google for erectile dysfunction, you'd find one hundred forty-seven thousand search results. If you look up PRP for clinical trials available, there are zero. So essentially mm-hmm. zero testing, but there's 147,000 hits on the Internet. So yeah. we have organizations that have done the work and have looked at all the research available. And basically the, the main ones for urology are the American Urologic Association and the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. And both of them have said you should not use these unless they are part of a clinical trial that the patient does not pay any money for. So do not spend a dime on any of these treatments because they're unproven and maybe they're unsafe. Now, in 10 years, maybe some of these yeah. treatments may pan out, but the vast majority don't. And if we look historically at what men have done to treat problems with erections, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, some, some examples in the, uh, this will be good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So in the middle ages, uh, one common treatment was to eat love bread. Mm. So how do you make love bread? Well, it's a highly sophisticated formula. You take a group of uh, maidens that are naked and you have them frolic in a field of wheat, specifically in a counterclockwise direction. After this has occurred, you, you harvest, harvest the wheat. You harvest the wheat and you make it into bread, and that cures your erections. So this is. This <laughs> I got to get that recipe. Yes, <laughs> you know. Amazing. Yeah. Next fall. All yeah, right. Aside go. from love bread. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think the bigger point about this is if you are uh, experiencing erectile dysfunction, it could be because there are other health concerns happening. Mm-hmm. So if anything else, you should at least talk to your doctor to say there might be something going on. Yes. We talked about this last time, but the penis is the canary in the coal mine. Right. It predicts heart disease in young men better than any other risk factor we have. Uh, it predicts depression, diabetes, all kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, it needs to be evaluated. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to hearing more about those ancient remedies. Next time. But we're out of time. time. <laughs> We've been talking about treatments for erectile dysfunction, what works and what doesn't, with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Tobias Kohler. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. From Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.